0: dive into real estate what are you waiting for welcome to the dive into real estate investing for newbies podcast where you will learn some of the newest strategies and simple techniques to get into real estate investing this podcast is about helping you take action and motivating you to dive into real estate for financial freedom now your host cecil rose All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Dive into Real Estate Investing for Newbies podcast. I have a very special guest, Jacob Jacob Vanderslice. Uh, I'm excited to have Jacob on the podcast. Jacob has an extensive amount of experience and still active in the market. He is an active investor and also uh, owner-operator, just does a lot. But today specifically, We'll be talking about self-storages and uh, some of his background and things that he's done over the past and still doing today. So welcome to the, the show, Jacob.
1: Cecil, great to, great to see you today. And, and thanks so much for having us on. We, we appreciate it.
0: So, Jacob, tell us a little bit about yourself. I see you have your sign in the back, Van West Partners. Um, tell us exactly how you got in the business and, you know, what are you doing currently right now? We got started about 15 years ago doing uh, residential fix
1: and flips. We scaled that up over the years. We've done well over a thousand. I wish we were still doing that because uh, it's a fun line of business, but it's just tough to find deals right now, obviously, especially in Denver. And we got into commercial real estate in 13 and 14, and we started doing adaptive reuse retail projects, which is basically converting old warehouses around Denver into multi-tenant experience-based retail, breweries, restaurants, gyms, tenants like that. And then we got into self-storage in 2015 and we like the asset class because it's been historically resistant to recessions and downturns. It seems to perform really well when things come off the rails and it seems to go well when things are good. People always have a need for self-storage and we scaled up the platform uh, since 2015. And uh, through today, we've got 30 self-storage facilities in eight different states. And uh, we've deployed about $170 million in gross capitalization and we're still buying. Uh, deal flow is a little more challenging than it was before the pandemic because it's an asset class that a lot of people um, gave their attention to because it performed well during the pandemic. So sourcing deals is a little bit more difficult, but we're still out there in the streets uh, getting a view done.
0: Man, that's exciting. So from doing over what, over a thousand flips to where you are now in the self-storage is like, was it a no-brainer for you making that that switch over or that change over to self-storages? Uh, I know with the marketing, did that affect y'all way of finding deals? Did y'all, like, what was the, I guess, what was the the process from switching over and how did you first stumble on doing self-storages?
1: Well, anytime we've opened the line, a new line of business, it's always been kind of crawl, walk, run. And if you crawl and it doesn't go well, you don't do more deals, you do something else. But if, it, if the crawl goes well, you keep going. And we had studied the asset class for a number of years and tracked performance metrics, uh, default rates on, on self-storage, debt, yields, cap rates. And after studying it for a while, we what that we saw and we want to get into it and the problem with our single family business was it was just way too transactional. We're constantly relying on uh, finding a deal, stabilizing it, then selling it over and over again. And once you sell a property, the, the whatever dreams you had for the performance of that property are over. It's done. It's sold. You got to pay taxes. You get your money back and you got to do another one. We like self-storage because we could deploy capital into the strategy and not be so transactional and kind of shift our thinking to more of a... A cash flow focus versus a transactional focus. So, yeah, we studied for a while. We got our first deal done with a, a, a JV venture with some local high net worth guys here in Denver. Built a couple properties in Denver. Repositioned an office building into self storage. So it was kind of programmatic and over time. And we we launched our first uh, self storage fund uh, about two and a half years ago. And that's gone. Well, we launched another fund this year. It's also going well so far, although it's only, we're only six months into it. So it's kind of early to tell, but, uh, that was kind of the pivot and I'm sure, I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners have had had to pivot their strategy and their, and their business just based on what's happening in the market. And we happened to pivot into self storage.
0: So self storage is no tenants, no toilets, no any of that. Um, so that, uh, i
1: don't i don't i don't want to directly disagree with you cecil but i guess i will that's a that's a common thing that people say and it's true there are no fair housing laws in self-storage and if somebody doesn't pay you just turn off their data access code versus going through the courts for an eviction but with that being said self-storage is very much an operating business and it's operationally intensive so customer service is very important People having a good storage experience is very important. Um, We've got, uh, like a lot of operators, especially in our infill locations, we have theft issues here and there. We have uh, criminal activity here and there. Sometimes we'll have people sleeping in our units overnight, which they're not supposed to. So it is by no means a fire and forget business. Um, I would liken it to a degree to hospitality. And that in the hotel business, people are constantly moving in and moving out and rates are changing very dynamically uh, seasonally and even by the day to a degree. And self-storage is no different. Ideally, no one's staying overnight in our storage units. But we have uh, we have hundreds of customers move in and move out of our portfolio every month, probably more. And because of that, your operations has to be rock solid.
0: Okay. So just a side note, I know we got these shows with self storage wars and all that. Does that, does that happen really? Um, what a lot of facilities are, uh, at yeah, all? we, we, we run uh, auctions on our portfolio
1: about once a month, maybe every two months, depending on our delinquency rate, which is fairly low. Um, one of my partners has a facility with his parents in California and storage wars did an episode at their location and he told me that storage wars planted some stuff in one of the units to make the <laughs> episode more interesting, you know, big surprise, right. Reality TV. Right. But, uh, yeah, besides that one, we've never, never encountered storage wars in any of our deals yet. Maybe someday.
0: Okay. So why not multi-family versus self storages? I know, um, I know, like you said, we, you know, Scott Myers pretty good. I, I've known Scott, but I know, uh, I think they did a a show on that a while back on multifamily versus, uh, self storages. Um, do, are you, do you have multifamilies or is that still part or is it strictly self storage? Is, is all that in your portfolio now? Well, as, as
1: I mentioned, we've got a, we've, a great depth of our background is in residential, both for sale residential and for rent residential. And, um, uh, i've been wrong many times and i was wrong back in 2016 when i thought the multifamily market in denver was getting too overbuilt there were a lot of new projects coming out of the ground and we looked at a few deals from uh, both kind of a existing value add perspective but also new development and we didn't do them and lo and behold we should have right multifamily has absolutely crushed it their uh, delinquency rates went up a little bit during the pandemic but it's a it's a darling asset class for class right now and a lot of investors are chasing it. And that's why cap rates are getting so compressed. And I think that the fundamentals there, which is workforce housing, there's always gonna be a need for workforce housing that's never gonna change. It's probably gonna increase as inflation takes off and home price appreciation continues. Um, But uh, we are not doing multifamily now, but I wish we would have gotten some projects off the ground years ago. But as far as a comparison to self-storage, uh, generally cap rates on multifamily are a little bit lower and the returns and the yields are a little bit tighter than self-storage. Um, you might, you might have a class A apartment building sell at a four cap or less in an infill downtown location, but you might have a self-storage facility that's uh, stabilized and also in an infill location, maybe sell at a five cap so that the cap rates aren't exactly aligned. Um, but I think in general, in terms of a dividend yield, on a current basis, on your on your cash in a given asset class, I think self-storage does a little bit better than multifamily.
0: Considering the, um, the way everything is happening now with the, the moratorium, the foreclosure moratorium, do you find that uh, or have you found any self-storages um, in pre-foreclosure? Do you find that as compared to maybe single-family homes or something like that?
1: No, we, we haven't. Uh, we used to see some that were in default and sometimes pre-foreclosure can take on a few different uh, meanings. Sometimes a borrower might be in violation of a loan covenant. So they're in technical default, but they're still servicing their debt. Um, we've seen more of those where a deal's in default because of a technicality and not so much because of a lack of debt service. But we have not bought a deal that's been in pre-foreclosure. Most of the properties we've acquired Uh, If not all of them in the last couple of years have been pretty low leverage and mom and pop owners who've owned them for a while and they're just trying to take some chips off the table. We'll come in and buy them, rebrand them and get below market customers up to market rates, get our expenses in line and uh, spend a little more money on advertising and get a website up. Some cases don't have websites. But um, that's our typical seller profile. But to my knowledge, we haven't, we haven't bought a deal, at least uh, in the in more recent term that was it was in foreclosure.
0: Now, do y'all, Jacob, do y'all have like a brand? Because I know I see a lot of self-storages that have branded. And um, like, I know you say y'all are in over, what, eight states now as far as. Yeah, we,
1: we do have a brand and our, our brand is Clear Home Self-Storage. And we used to outsource our management to third parties. And we found over time that uh, it's pretty, pretty easy to conclude this, I guess. But we found over time that owners care more about their deals than third parties. So we, we went down the road of self-managing. So now we, we self-manage our entire portfolio with the exception of three deals here in Denver that are kind of part of the legacy partnership. And management, property management is a painful business, whether it's residential, commercial, self-storage, whatever it might be. But so much of our value creation is predicated on our our ability to effectively manage these properties and grow NOI, control expenses, grow revenue. And we didn't want to outsource that to somebody else because we just care more. And we watch our our bottom line a little more carefully than I think uh, a massive REIT would who is just taking a management fee. So
0: we self-manage. So being a type of investment company that um, you all have, do y'all offer opportunities for... um, other investors to come in and invest in the self-storages or is it a certain requirement? Um, how does that work?
1: Yeah, we, we do. We, we raise pro, uh, quite a bit of private capital. So our, our capital stacks on our deals is uh, senior bank debt up to about 65% of cost. And then the balance of that equity behind the bank debt is uh, investor equity and our own equity. So we're, we're on our most recent self-storage fund. The fund's going to be 30 million in equity. We've deployed just over half of that. We've got another five million dollars in commitments. We'll probably close the fund out by the end of this year, uh, but most of our capital stack are, are just investors from our network. People will invest anywhere from a hundred thousand to five million, depending on the investor, and kind of everywhere in between.
0: Wow, man, that's awesome! So, in your in your opinion, the forecast for self storage is uh, do you do you think, in your opinion, there be more? Coming up probably in the next maybe five, 10 years. Uh, it'll always be maybe something sustainable.
1: Yeah. Whenever uh whenever I forecast I'm wrong, just like my multifamily <laughs> forecast in Denver in 2016. But I think it's uh if you look at if you look at the history of the asset class, it's historically stable. Now, what I think we'll see in the short term at least, we're seeing quite a few sellers take their properties to market because they're worried that. Biden is going to increase the capital gains tax or modify it somehow next year. And they're also concerned that Biden might uh, eliminate the 1031 exchange. We won't get into politics here, obviously. But a lot of sellers are taking their properties to market because of that concern. So we're seeing a little bit more of an influx of inventory in the last few months and likely through the rest of the year than we normally would see. I think there's a lot of kind of there was a lot of lack of of mobility, obviously, during the pandemic transaction volume dropped a little bit, at least for a while. So I think a lot of sellers who might have been considering selling last year who waited are now taking their properties to the market. As far as looking forward five or 10 years down the road, we can't tell we can't tell you what cap rates are going to be or what values are going to be. But we can, with reasonable certainty, predict our cash flow. And cash flow is kind of at the core of our investment thesis on these properties. So the chances that uh, that cash flow gets diminished by a substantial amount are pretty low. Um, But five years down the road or 10 years down the road, I think it's going to be an asset class that's still around. And I think Americans are, for the foreseeable future, are going to have a need for extra space to keep their stuff.
0: Right, right. Um, so we, we, I know you had talked about the multifamily unit classes. Uh, are there certain classes of self-storages that you look for, certain demographics of how y'all find y'all self-storages? Yeah, self-storage is,
1: is very local market sensitive and local supply sensitive. So the first thing we'll look at are the supply ratios in a given trade radius, the one, three and five mile um, once, you're, once you're getting over 10 square feet per capita, you're starting to become a little more oversaturated with supply. And underneath that, it's a little bit more balanced. I think nationally, it's about seven square feet per capita. So the first thing we're looking at are supply ratios. And beyond that, we're just looking for good nuts and bolts real estate demographics. So we're looking at incomes, uh, area median incomes, We're looking at population growth. Um, job creation, employment bases, uh, housing density. We're not buying properties in, in rural locations because of a lack of density in rooftops. And um, we want markets that we feel like are, are going to be poised for, for growth. And I think a lot of those markets right now are in the Midwest and the South and the Southeast. I think uh, the, the Northeast markets have been challenged with um with a variety of variety of factors just high taxes high cost of living people are moving you know south and southeast and west so we're generally focusing those markets supply ratios first and then uh good real estate fundamentals in addition to that
0: right okay have you seen a a influx of commercial properties i know with everyone going virtual are y'all taking the approach of investing in a lot of these commercial properties that are Mm -hmm. vacant um, like strip malls, some strip malls are becoming vacant. Do y'all, do y'all, do y'all at least uh, take a look at those or um, is that something you can take and maybe build the self-storage on or convert?
1: Yeah, um, we, we've done a number of conversions over the years on, on three deal types. One of them was an office building that we converted into self-storage. Another was an industrial building and another was a retail building. So we're seeing, we're, we're seeing those here and there. One of the challenges with converting a retail location to self-storage is the zoning. Typically self-storage is not an allowed zoning use and the tax revenue from self-storage does not compare to what the city would realize from say a, a major grocery that would come in there. So it's tougher to get those uh, rezoned for a, an allowed use that would allow storage in that space. So we do see those. We haven't seen a big influx of them recently, but um, here and there they'll pop up.
0: Okay. So is marketing the same for you to find self-storages? I know y'all probably established now as far as the brand, the name, but uh, like finding self-storages, is it the same? Like sending out, do y'all send out a lot of direct mail, social media, kind of like that?
1: We do. Yeah. We we applied a lot of our our single family marketing practices from back in the day to sourcing self-storage facilities. Um, even though I mentioned earlier that inventory has increased, deal flow is still very challenging and very competitive. There's just a lot of buyers out there right now. So we'll do direct to seller marketing here and there. Um, we, we did a couple of years ago, a direct mail piece to probably uh, 20,000 per, person less, something like that. And it was quite simply just a business letter saying, Hey, we're in the business. We want to buy your facility. We might be able to pay you more than you expect. We'd love to have a phone call with you to learn more about it. And we placed uh, about an $8 million deal off that mail campaign and a $2 million deal. So the, the ROI on that marketing was, was good. We're not doing as much of the direct-to-seller marketing as we used to. Most of our deal flow now is coming through broker relationships, uh, deals that are either poorly marketed or deals that are about to hit the market. It's very rare that if there's a widely marketed deal with a call for offers that we can compete because our return requirements and our cost of capital are, are quite a bit higher than a lot of the uh, bigger institutional players out there. So tough to be competitive on a, on a listed deal with a with a major brokerage house, but um, we're, we're still getting inventory just from our relationships. So really broker relationships and some direct to seller marketing or how we're sourcing these.
0: Right. But most of y'all deals y'all find are directly off the market or is it, some are listed you think are y'all I'm sure y'all prefer off the market, but are most of the, I'd say,
1: I'd say about 70% of our acquisitions in 2021 have been
0: unmarketed. And that's, that's great compared to a lot of other people that's finding these deals, either online or listed or whatever. So um, yeah, just like residential in this market, once something actually hits,
1: it's tough to be competitive on it and get to it ahead of time. Right. Right. You could probably get better, a better price.
0: So, uh, Jacob, tell me, man, you seem pretty busy um, now these days with everything was going with investment and in self-storage. Uh, is there anything you do for fun, like hobbies or anything like that um, outside of real estate? Pretty much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Between work and, uh, and a three and almost two year old boys, it's it's tough to find time for fun. Uh, I play, I play golf as often as I can. I'm not very good, but I get out there when I can find time. I just took a trip to California with my dad and brother-in-law and a buddy for a couple of days. That was, that was a blast. Um, when I've got more time, though, I, 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 love aviation. I, I fly airplanes for fun. I ski, uh, a lot of hiking, camping, golfing, uh, just outdoor stuff. And, um, yeah, but that's mainly it. But, uh, but lately it's just been, uh, strap into the office by day and, and play with the kids and give them baths at, at night on the weekends. Right.
0: Right. Right. So uh, are there any good books that you're reading right now that you can probably refer to audience to? Uh, it doesn't have to be real estate related, but just I guess books that has helped you, you know, over the years and um, yeah. your growth and everything. Well, to my, to my, everlasting shame. I rarely read business
1: books because I just can't concentrate on them. I can't get through them for whatever reason. I'll listen to business podcasts and stuff, but I just have a really tough time getting through real estate books. Uh, I want to write a real estate book someday about all the stuff I've gone through and experienced, but I don't know if that's a someday thing. Maybe I'll get to it. But um, one book I read recently is called In the Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. And it's a survival story about a polar exploration that was trying to find a passage over the North pole. Back in the day, they thought that if they got far enough North um, the sun would melt all the ice and they could go directly over the top of the earth. And it turned out that that didn't happen. They got frozen in the ice. They had to walk out a thousand miles, but it's just an epic survival story. And if you, if you read it, it really helps you put in context any challenges that you're, you're experiencing today and how relatively nominal those challenges are. You know, you might have had a bad day at work or a deal's not going well, but, uh, you know, at least you're not eating the leather off your shoes to survive. Um, so that's a good book. And another one I'm reading, too, is called The Splendid and the Vile, and it's about um, Winston Churchill's leadership in the U.K. during World War II. And that's been, uh, I'm, not, I'm not through it yet, but uh, I, like, I like leadership books a lot, too, about uh, historic, um, h- historic leaders, just how they handled uh, adversity, how they handled
0: challenges. So those are kind of two of them that I've uh, either reading now or read recently. So with everything where you had today, um, and I'm sure you have a lot of more things you want to accomplish in life. Uh, you know, the name of this show is Diving into Real Estate Investing for Newbies podcast. So many people are trying to get into real estate, different uh, investment in real estate. Uh, if you were new or if you could tell someone that's just thought, no, what what advice would you give some person that's new that's trying to get into getting into real estate?
1: That's one of my favorite questions that we get pretty often. And I don't consider myself uh, necessarily qualified to dispense advice, but if I was going to dispense advice, I would say, don't think about it too much. Don't analyze it too much. I mean, do your, do do your diligence, understand what you're getting into, but the best way to learn how to create wealth in real estate is to go out and do a deal. You're, you're not going to find, you're not going to find the, the, playbook in, in a podcast or a webinar or a book about real estate investing, you'll find some ideas and you'll, you'll get some pointers from that stuff. But the best way to learn is by doing, and the easiest thing to do in the world is do nothing. So go out there and take a risk and and do a deal and the education you'll get, whether you make money or hopefully not lose money, but if you lose a little bit of money, the education you'll get, you can apply to every deal after that and probably prevent yourself from making the same mistakes
0: man that is awesome advice my last question to you is having mentors like uh, being in a type of industry you're in how important it, important is it to you to have mentoring and coaching and everything to continue your growth coaching uh,
1: coaching is very important it's like uh, it's like spending money to be part of a mastermind you know you spend money every quarter every year to be in the mastermind And you can't really quantify the ROI and that spend with all the stuff that you learn. And maybe you go to the mastermind, you learn one thing and you go home and apply that to your business. And and that one thing might make you a hundred thousand dollars over a given year. Um, On the coaching side, we have a, we have a business coach that my, myself and my, my, my two partners use, and he's awesome. We pay him $30,000 a year. And each of us have uh, our individual calls with them to kind of talk about how things are going. And we also have a group call once a month with all three of us and our coach on the call. And he challenges us. He helps us work on our interpersonal dynamics, any conflict we might be having, any big decisions we have to make in the business. And he helps us with goal setting too. And one of the goals that he he, uh, had us set was launching his most recent fund in Q4 of last year. He had us set this, launched it in January of this year. And he always tells us, if your goal doesn't seem scary, your goal is not big enough. And it's so cool that we've set a scary goal and we're on target to meet that goal. So I, I can't say enough about the value of, uh, of business coaches or any coach for that matter. It's money well spent and it's always good to have a third party kind of step in and objectively talk
0: to you about how to uh, make your life and your business better. And Jacob, that's, I hope everybody was listening to that. That is a wealth of information Jacob, I thank you. I appreciate you taking out your time, out your busy schedule to be on the podcast today. Hopefully uh, people will go back and re-listen to this. Uh, Jacob has dropped a lot of good nuggets, a lot of good wisdom. So thanks, Jacob. I appreciate it. And uh, how could people get a hold of you if they wanted to uh, just inquire about investing and just learn more about what products y'all have to offer?
1: Yeah, I'm always happy to talk real estate with anybody. Uh, you can go to our website at vanwestpartners.com. You can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. And and Cecil, thank you for having us. This was a, a lot of fun. It's been, uh, it's been great to get to know you on the podcast.
0: Thank you too, Jacob. All right, guys, see you on the next podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Dive Into Real Estate Investing for Newbies podcast at diveintorealestatefornewbies.com.